Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 26 of the podcast, the topic is how to write a book on the future of healthcare. Our guest is Scott E. Burgess, founder of Healthcare 360 Media Group and host of the Healthcare 360 podcast. We talk about the importance of having a deep conviction before you write a book, how you go about creating a piece of true thought leadership, and more specifically, what's wrong with healthcare today. In the process, Scott starts sketching the solution he envisions, rebuilding healthcare from scratch. Scott, so great to have you on the show. How are you doing today? Tron, I couldn't be better, man. It's everything's been great. Uh, lots of change, lots of accepted positive change. Uh, we're refining uh, our home life. We have a lot of my daughters uh, into new sports, new activities, new groups. That's been awesome. We we just got off an awesome vacation of the family. We had an amazing time. We went down to Madeira, or actually over to Madeira Beach, Florida. That was fantastic. Uh, we just uh, we ripped it up. We went tubing, uh, wave running had fun. There was this great little town or area of Madeira Beach called John's Pass. It was just fantastic. It was very friendly. friendly. Uh, you can also be an adult if you wanted your kids to go off and do something else. It wow. had a little bit of everything. It was just superb. I'm so excited to hear it. So today, Scott, first of all, I wanted to kick it off with a little bit of, of your background. So sure. you're an entrepreneur, you're a podcaster. Mm-hmm. And you are a healthcare consultant uh, and the CEO of, of what you, uh, your company is called Healthcare 360 Media. But you're a Boston native, but you're down there in, in Florida, enjoying uh, life uh, in the South. I got cold. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> right. Your podcast emphasizes data and analytics and healthcare technology and other trends. Uh, your background in terms of education is science, health, and human sciences from Northeastern. Now, this is what I know about you from just looking at, you know, LinkedIn and, and bios and, and, and talking to you a little bit. What in all of this background is today shaping you the most? What are you taking most inspiration from today? And I think it'll become apparent why I asked this question later. Sure. That's a hard one. Uh, you know, something, uh, and it doesn't have to be one thing, although most of my guests pick one thing, but, uh, I would probably not pick one thing myself. So feel free to not agree with the premise. Of course your book actually changed the way I thought about certain things, but what I didn't recognize before is that I was already thinking that way. And then your book kind of helped shape and kind of put that nail in the coffin for me, to be honest. Thinking about the pandemic? Buy the book. Pandemic Aftermath, How Coronavirus Changes Global Society by Trun Unheim was published by Atmosphere Press in 2020, putting the pandemic into the context of the two historical precedents, the Black Death and the influenza of 2018. Five scenarios are considered to be relevant for our understanding of the next decade. The five scenarios 
are borderless world, nation state renewal, two worlds apart, Habitian chaos, and status quo. The first portion of the book is nonfiction. The second portion of the book is fiction. If you are at all curious, you can get this book everywhere books are sold and can learn more at pandemic-aftermath.com. So I'm going through, so I'll go back. The reason why we moved to Florida, we lived in, I'm born and raised in Boston. We moved down to New Jersey for a little while. I started noticing that uh, I started getting some food allergies or there was just some things going on with my body that just didn't make sense. And uh, I was, what they diagnosed with these like weird diseases or this form of skin thing that I never heard of before. I'll leave the the hyperbole out to the side, but someone said there was something going on. They were completely wrong and they missed it. So I changed my diet. I changed my lifestyle. I changed how I approached my day to day. And I was a grinder. I was one of those consultants. I was out in the street in healthcare. I, as you previously mentioned just a little bit, uh, I go out to hospitals and I consult on how to design operating theaters, interventional suites, specialty labs, and I would go out and I would, from start to finish, meet with physicians, surgeons, architects, planners, engineers. And I was the middle person making sure that all that was coordinated, scheduled, and the delivery was exactly what someone wanted. And I spent a lot of time doing that. And it was a rat race because healthcare at large, uh, it just most professionals are working 14 hours plus. So I changed that lifestyle up. Uh, not that I don't work as hard. I work equally or if not more, but I changed how I did it. So what got me here today is recognizing where I was not as efficient and proficient in my use of time. So my use of time overall is just very top of mind. And that's how I got to where I'm at at the moment. So I wanted to unpack that in a couple of ways, but first I wanted to point something out and just hope you don't mind me asking this, Go, but shoot. when I'm I look at your book. background yeah. and what you have put on LinkedIn and, and things about your background, there's a notable absence of the content of your life when you were in the grind. Yeah. In other words, you have actually omitted 10 years of your life. In your, LinkedIn, 20 in your LinkedIn life. background. <laughs> yeah. Why did you do that? And is it related to your answer to the first question? Is it, are you basically saying that what you did in those years doesn't represent you and you almost don't want to be recognized for it? <laughs> Even though I guess it would serve you well as a consultant to kind of line up where you've been. I, I'm asking this question because I was puzzled you know, as I was looking through your website, I, you know, you asked me kind of, you know, how's my new website? And I started thinking, hmm, there's this missing number of years here. And there's yeah. always a story behind it. Yeah. Tell me. I've been. Is, was there such a big shift that you really just almost have to forget about those years in order to make that new shift? Uh, no, but people are fickle and I recognize people. I listen to people and I see people and I want them to focus on the present and what I'm doing today, not what I've done. I know what I've done. 
and I don't need to prove it to anybody. I know how well I did. I know how much money I made. I know how much time I stole for my family. Mm-hmm. I know that. I don't need to re- represent it. I have trophies that I literally have thrown out. I don't need any past recognition. I have it all up here. But what I am focusing on is my new company, and I want people to focus on that. And the, specifically, the reason why is we have one question, and as I've learned throughout my entire professional career and even my educational career and my training leading up to it, I have over, uh, geez, close to 30 years in healthcare or in, in health-related uh, professions or just helping people in general. If Had we known there were other options to explore and exhaust before we went down a traditional healthcare route, would you take them? Most people think that the systems that are in place now are the only way. I'm here to tell everyone that is not the only way. We, not that it's bad, but there are other options to exhaust on every level of our personal health and well being, not healthcare, but health and well being that need to be explored. And once we get that message across, that my purpose has been fulfilled. Wow, this is powerful stuff. I, you know, my, my question was going to be, why did you start a podcast? But it seems to me you're already answering this. I mean, you actually are on a quest here. You're not on yeah. a quest to, to, to put on a podcast about healthcare and, and tech and, you know, fascinating new uh, AI technologies and devices. You, you actually want to change minds and lives. I do. Yeah. I mean, I see myself trying to be quite honest. Uh, we've been nicknamed the Joe Rogan for healthcare for a couple of different reasons, because we have a very, really diverse conversation mix in our podcast. We also have good conversation. I mean, we can dip, dive, move, shake everywhere around it, and then still come back home, if you will, to the ISO center of the conversation. And we can do it pretty freely and openly. And the biggest thing that I recognize mostly is that when we're truly free and honest with ourselves, Mm. then problems and solutions start to be recognized and then applied. We have a lot to cover today, but <laughs> let sure me unpack do. one more thing about all of the things that you are starting to kind of un- unwind here and, and, and open up. If, if you were to state what's wrong with healthcare today, what is it in a sentence that you're trying to do? Is it give people options beyond what they see in front of their eyes or is are there also some basically fundamental adjustments you're asking people to make or are you just asking people to question more and and make sure that they really want what they're currently getting in other words do you have a concise message or are you just saying we're all on this path and the entire system needs to change and you you just want to start changing individual after individual what in other words is this, are you on a journey where you know where you are and where everyone needs to be going? Or are you, have you, are you just saying there is a journey and you please just need to understand it's a, it's a journey and you're, you're not re- yet on it you know, yourself. <sighs> that, that question trend is really deep and really packed. The problem with healthcare in a sentence though, to get back to the main point is that yep. it's all based around, it's not people or profits over people, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. But it's based around a payment system. 
it's not bad that it's based around a payment system because there's people who are providing a service and everyone needs to live. But the sole and utter focus of healthcare is based around payment. That's wrong. It should not be that way. What it should be is providing fractal solutions to what their health issues may be. And if it's not on a CBT code or an ICD-10 code where it can be aligned with a payment system for, re- for insurance reimbursement, guess what? It doesn't exist, which means that most people are going to get a misdiagnosis. And then guess what? Someone's going to get a lawsuit, blah, blah. And that's what I mean about it goes really, really deep. And there is a lot that's underneath that. Talk about the food system, big pharma, everyone. So all that is in that question. And yeah. we could probably speak for days, not hours, but days on where the breakdown is. But the real, real issue is we, we have the most magnificent body that has ever been put on this planet. It has a self-healing mechanism built into our microbiome, and we don't know how to use it. We don't know how to use it effectively. We will get into those things because today we're going to talk about what your thoughts are and why you want to write a book. But before we do so, what does value-based healthcare mean to you? Is it just one of those kind of fun terms that get thrown in there from people who don't really want to change the system? Or is that actually where part of the solution? Exist. There is no value-based healthcare. It doesn't exist. It's completely, it's all, it, it's a lie. Period. So you think even just coming up with that term and using that term is almost like an illustration that you're part of the system. Oh, yeah. We're all part of the system. We just don't know it because it's what we've been fed. And so, for example, if you even look at – so we, I did an interview with uh, Dr. Brent Lacey uh, early on in my podcast when we were first starting to launch. Uh, he's a magnificent guy. He's a, an unbelievable person. And yeah. his personal quest is to go out and actually help physicians who are graduated from med school. and to teach them how to absolve their debt. So what he explained to me was that an individual surgeon, physician, practitioner leaving med school is going to leave with somewhere between five to $650,000 in acquired debt before they even make a dollar. That's crazy. Most of the physicians are leaving with a significant other. So combined, they're over a million dollars, easy, but I'm even thinking about it, of combined acquired debt. Side bank that for a second. Big Pharma owns the high majority by over 40% of the textbooks that are delivered and installed into the med system. So there is a direct parallel of what the surgeons know, how they're taught, what they're taught to practice how they're taught to diagnose back into this payment system. There is no value-based care because at the root level, at our educational system for our best and brightest in medicine, they're being taught things that are based on Western-based medicine, which have been, if you compare it against Eastern-based medicine, far outweigh the research and the data. Wow, And we don't accept that as a country. We don't look at Eastern-based medicine as an acceptable form of practice. And quite frankly, the insurance companies won't even reimburse for it. Crazy stuff. This is crazy stuff. Today we're here to talk about 
that because the headline that you asked me to think about for you was how do I write a book? Right. And you were very generous in coming to me with that question because I am by no means the world's expert on that. I, I will say I have written three books and I have three weeks left on my deadline for my fourth book and I have others planned. So I do know something about it and I've mm -hmm. written plenty of other things that aren't books, but they're, you know, they account for something and I have a library of 5,000 books. There's all kinds of things that I know about in books, but in order to help you with that, and I thought we would do this in a podcast. My first question to anybody who wants to write a book and to myself when I think I want to write a book is, why do you want to write a book? So that's just going to be my question to you. I want to write a book in my specific genre of professionalism because there's no more need for my professional consultational skills in the healthcare market. It needs to be blown up and restarted from scratch. So versus individualizing company and having a strong con consultation uh, sales force, however you want to term it, there's no more need. COVID's proven that. So why don't we make it, everything's going to a European-based tender. Right now, the United States is not, because again, it's based on a payment system. There is no more need for people like me in healthcare. And the way to change healthcare is to teach everyone how to do it. Period. And by teach teaching them everyone how to do it, how to, uh, how to be a consultant as successful as I have been. So you want everybody to be their own healthcare consultant? Yeah. Or you I want, want everybody? I, want a, I, I would envision if I was to close my eyes and envision what this would look like a healthcare administrator, a supply chain, a surgeon could simply go to a website or click on a link to a book and read over 15 pages about what they need, how to do it, and redirect them to the resources that they would require to get the job done. So this reminds me, I, because uh, my wife is a Harvard alum, I read sometimes these classifieds in, in some of these things that Harvard sends out. And there was one a few years ago that struck me quite a bit. They were looking on behalf of a family for a healthcare advocate slash consultant. I, I can't remember how they termed it, but essentially they were looking for a person whose sole role was to be a healthcare advocate on behalf of, of a family. But I think the presumption was at least one person in that, or maybe two mm -hmm. in that family was of elevated age and obviously wealthy. And it was a short ad, but it animated enough for me to understand that the role was going to entail dealing with options, understanding treatment plans, communicating that to the family, managing the whole process, including kind of the whole network of providers. And you could just imagine in today's American healthcare system, Let's say this was an East Coast based person. Let's put them in New York just to, you know, out of, uh, just to have something to put in your head. Is that what you're looking to simplify so that we all don't need to, one, be so wealthy that we actually can pay for one full time equivalent who looks after essentially our personal health, perhaps ostensibly 
the entire family. But essentially, that, that family had decided health is so important to us. We understand so little about it, but we have the resources. It's worth the same as a cleaning person. You know, we, we essentially need to employ a person right now to take care of managing this entire area of our life. Now, what are your reflections about that particular situation? And can that change? Is it, is it a good thing? Is it a horrible thing? And, and will that change? You would be hopeful and wishful to, to see or hope that it, will, that it could change. But it's only going to change when enough people, and frankly, you need about 10% of the population to demand that change for politicians and, and policymakers and lawmakers to actually go about those direct actions and requests to be able to jump on that. So are we able to change? Yes, but we have to educate people and people have to be awoken to what it is. So let me kind of divert this a little bit. So uh, I don't know if you have Netflix or not, but for those who are listening in your audience, if you have Netflix, if you look up a series called Heal, uh, Dr. Joe Dispenza, pretty popular guy. He's done a lot of uh, public speaking events and et cetera. What if it was actually possible where you could actually, your body has outside of direct acute trauma, your body knows how to heal itself. Go back to my earlier comment. It's designed around a payment system. So if your body knows how to heal itself and knows how to do corrective actions, because even if you take medicines, there's still a gap, a time gap before the medicines kick in or amplify it. And before you start taking yourself off the medication, if you don't get addicted to the drugs, because uh, 80% of the drugs that are in there, I'm sorry, 70% of the drugs that are, uh, that are being released to uh, CVS and Walgreens and Big Pharma, et cetera, are highly addictive. You're able to actually go ahead and heal yourself. Now, in, in that exact example of heal in the Netflix documentary, uh, Dr. Dispenser actually talked about how he had direct trauma and there was six levels of vertebrae that had to get pinned or screwed. And he is a living example that he didn't get the procedure. It was going to be debilitating for him. And they actually go through what the long-term effects would and could be because back surgery is a 50, 50 percentile as far as 50% being successful, 50% being unsuccessful. But it's really, wow. it's really on the higher of close to 65% unsuccessful because you're dealing with the spinal cord. Right. That he was actually able to heal himself through uh, controlled emotions, and, and it's very deep, and it goes uh, in, into topics that we're not aware of or abreast of in our day-to-day conversation about our personal health and well-being. This brings me to the next real issue, I think, around writing books, because it goes to the depth of the, of the heart of the matter. So what is thought leadership? To you and who deserves to be a thought leader? Because that's the second question I, I would always ask and, and I would ask of you. I know that you're sort of saying you represent a new voice in this field. But on the other hand, there are thought leaders in this field. There are some, like you, you've already talked about some, that are starting to think these new thoughts. And this has to do a little bit with the question of platform, which we'll get into, right? Because a book and a podcast, all of those things, they kind of depend on a slight bit of a platform because, you know, it's one thing to have a desire to communicate something, but 
it becomes you know immensely easier if you have a little bit of a platform of people who are willing to give you the time of day so that you can actually at least start affecting yeah. the change and then spreading that but but where it becomes deep is when you think about not only kind of the competition because that's the simple side of this story is like who else is out there and what books are they writing it is a little bit interesting because it should i think that would be my advice, right? You know, you definitely don't want to write a book that is too close to what's being published before. You should probably also not write a book that is so incredibly different that it doesn't even refer to anything that's out there. In fact, that's one of the things that I think is wrong with a lot of at least business books. They typically start as a business author. You start from, there's, there's kind of two extremes. One is the academic author you know, not the successful kind of business school author who sells millions of books, but the, the other extreme is this academic who wants to refer to everything and everyone and has no opinion, but they just want to summarize the literature and kind of like, this is where the field's at. No one really wants to read that because it's kind of pedantic. The other side, which sort of sells well, but ultimately I think fails this thought leadership test is to think that you have reinvented everything. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't really, it's not just about intelligence. Oh, I think I've seen something no one sees, but it's like, if you refuse to refer to anything around you, even the people that might even agree with you, and you sort of say, oh, I'm charting this new course. I'm not going to care what anyone else thinks. And you wouldn't believe how many business books I have that I could just fire up right now behind me because they're not worth the paper they're written on. They're written by someone who's so full of themselves that you read it once. It's like valid for a few seconds. And then you just throw it out because you either are kind of part of the person cult of that person and you sort of read it and think, whoa, that, that's an impressive book. Or, I mean, the thing just expires just because the content in there is so tied to that person's almost like masturbation of concepts. That's what it really is. You kind of just create your own conceptual, uh, you know, realm and yep. then you just try to draw people in and you refuse to even just relate to empirical realities out there. So here's my question. Who in this very new landscape you want to chart at all is a thought leader? And what does the rest of the field that you want to relate to consist of? So the thought leaders... Are the, and the people that I would consider in that role are people who don't necessarily want to break the norm, not, not the rogue people. I mean, that's kind of cliche in a way, but the people who know that there is more efficiency and proficiency in, in a design and an approach to deliver better solutions, not care, yeah. but solutions long-term. Yeah. Let me give you an example of that. We mentioned earlier on what I did uh, or everything I omitted from my LinkedIn profile. Okay. Now, I would go out and if I had an interventional lab that I was tasked to uh, or to help build with architects and engineers and planners, here's the problem. Every single hospital, they have their plant ops, they have their facility ops who run the grounds and the buildings and all the mechanicals of that institution. But they're also tasked with the new development. So what ends up happening is they need a new ROI plan. So the administrators are listening to the physicians and the physicians are saying this room's too old. There's new techniques, but we can't do two new techniques because we don't have the equipment. 
And because we don't have the equipment, we can assign a new ROI and it, it keeps snowballing. Okay. You get the idea. Yeah. So they come up with, okay, uh, these, these rooms are anywhere between two and a half to 4 million per one space. That's roughly 900 square feet on average. That's if it's that, that's the minimum. So there's an uh, AIA guideline. So an American Institute of Architects where they have a minimum guidelines per type of space or clinical environment they're trying to build. So for an interventional lab, and this is not even a, this is not even a surgical space. It could be any, any type of medical spaces. Yeah, so like, they're building, for example, like an orthopedic suite, the, the minimum right. square footage is 650 square feet. If they build an interventional lab, the minimum square footage is 900 square feet. That's the minimums. But what ends up happening is, these healthcare institutions, what ha- what's happening is they're going into the, oh, one second, let me close my door. Someone opened it. Yep. No problem. <clears throat> so what's happening is these, these leadership positions in engineering is they have what they call their circle of five and their yeah. circle of five of contractors, engineer, third-party engineers, third-party architects who they hire to bring in. And here's where the just the lack of efficiency exists. Yeah. And I sit down with my other consultative buddies who are out in the we we've all done these these jobs. And I, I look and I'm like, who's the architect for this job? It's somebody new. And we could actually sit down and say, they're good, they suck, they're awful, and they're fantastic. <laughs> right down the line. And when we went to go back and actually try to express that back to leadership at the hospital saying, look, you're wasting your time, your money. I've seen architects where we have started from square A and by the time we hit D, they were fired and we had to restart all over again and they lost a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. I mean, that this is expensive. So I, I can see on, on, yeah, on that aspect of, of technology, on the built environment, I can see that healthcare spending could rapidly escalate given that the, these right. are such engineered spaces. So versus having sure. dedicated architectural firms des- designed for just hybrid theaters or orthopedic labs or uh, GI suites to run efficiently for that process, because you're looking at a build out of anywhere of, let's say 90 days, 75 to 90 days on average, 75 on the, on the quick 90 days plus, on the average without change orders and every contractor has a change order at this point because they're coming in low bid hospitals are picking low bid to save the most money uh now i also understand in fairness because we have to play both sides and we're going to have a real conversation we have to make sure that it's fair for both sides the reason why there's a circle of five for architects engineers contractors etc is that there's a lot of fraud built into it. There's a lot of buy-ins and payouts built into it. Yeah. And a lot of the healthcare institutions have got caught with their pants down, paying people under the table or giving someone a project that it didn't go through their circle of three or five or how many they have in their pool of contractors. So to be fair. So, so would you say that the a, a big part of the subject of your book is on essentially reevaluating what, what was your 20 years of experience in this built environment for me- medical technology and, and physical infrastructure? Or are you, as I was going to ask next, 
to some extent also going to be building on all of these myriads of guests that you have on your podcast, which are charting a much and commenting on a much larger sort of canvas of, of, of issues or, uh, surrounding healthcare, because there's, you kind of have two choices. I mean, you have this one expertise where you're, you have gone a little bit rogue in the sense that you're saying, you know, everything, it really w- was wrong with the way it's been structured. But on the other hand, you have gone out with this new platform and you have so many exciting conversations that take healthcare in oh so many directions. Yeah. And, and that's because that was going to be my other not advice, but more, more question to you, you know, to what extent are you going to directly use the stuff you're learning day to day in your podcast uh, as fodder for this new book? Because it seems to me, and I'm, as you know, new to podcasting, but it's just such an an empirically rich area. I, for one, wish that I had been a podcaster, not three years ago, but 20 years ago when I was a researcher, I would have wanted to have the same disclaimer on my radio, you know, on my recorder where I interviewed for an audience of one, which was me, and I could barely get through the interview afterwards. Imagine if I had recorded all those conversations with the presumption that they would be made public Mm. and that it becomes a research repertoire for the future. Right. Yeah. So I I mean, you have such a rich uh, literature already, you know, all of this data. We've done that, Tron. We've actually looked back and we looked at the diversity of the conversations that we've had on our podcast. And let's take the podcast out of the equation for a minute, because this is a really important point. Yep. If you look back at the conversations that we had with key people who are data analysts, IT experts, architects, planners, engineers, physicians, physicians in specific genres of the space itself, open wellness, uh, we, we have someone for who's coming on for breath work, for example, uh, next on the show as well. And if you look at all of that, I can sit here right now today, tell everyone what is healthcare going to look like in the next three to five years. I could spell it out. I can tell you right now that CapEx for capital equipment and health and healthcare, there's no money. There's zero money. Yeah. Everyone wants to go into healthcare to, to make a, you know, a big dollar figure, uh, you know, annually, it's not going to happen. CapEx is done for 12 to 24 months. I was on the phone the other day with the uh, CEO of supply chain of one of the big healthcare systems down here in South Florida. But if you looking back at all those conversations, it will, I don't have to tell them it will be spelled out for them. Healthcare is going to be because 80% of the consumers that are out there, and you can actually find it in my conversation with Tatiana, are very unhappy, displeased, whatever adjective you want to throw in there with their personal healthcare deliverance. Yeah. And it's going to be re-delivered in a smaller community-based format where it feels where it's it's touchable and there's more of an emotion tied to it versus this big building. And that's how it's going to change and transform. It's also going to change and transform because our personal healthcare is going to be this. Your personal healthcare will be on your phone in three years, in a wearable, on your phone. And if you look at today, I think it was Teladoc and... Uh, linguist, I believe it was. They merged today, and that's a telemedicine two telemedicine firms for yeah. seventy million dollars. 
telemedicine is going, it's going to change the way healthcare is delivered and administered and the wearables and the tech and where that's going. And here's how you know, Samsung released the S20 Ultra. I've spoken about this many times in my podcast, almost too much. My wife's always like, you got to stop talking about all that, all that tech stuff. It makes me laugh. But the uh, S20 Ultra, the phone, uh, if you put your finger in the back in the infrared reader, it can actually tell diabetes uh, for insulin levels and heart rate and everything else. But they've actually figured out how to put that tech into a watch. And on top of it, they're going to have the first official release of a blood pressure monitor on your wrist. So, I mean, this could be an entire show just of us talking about healthcare tech, right. but 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 I but I'm presuming uh, that a lot of your book will be directly on trends and your observations on current developments in healthcare tech. How would you characterize and, and delineate that field uh, first off? Because I, I I mean I would buy a book on that right now, but on the other hand, it rapidly gets out of hand because it's so wide. So there's digital health. There's te telehealth in and of itself, which is sort of narrower and different than, than the digital health. And then there's things with digital therapeutics and things. And then you have the device space and, and then you have uh, kind of consumer electronics, like you pointed to, and the mm -hmm. integration of which, how do you even, uh, so right now, if you, if you were writing that chapter on, you know, a uh, 101 uh, idiot's guide to healthcare tech, what are the main kinds of technologies and how would you kind of group them as of right now it's, a, it's an immense question by yeah. the way but i mean i would i would read a book on that uh that's it's really hard and i've had a conversation with friends where they're talking about companies like kernel yep most people know Neuralink, elon musk uh kernel and the that technology will exist uh and Again, this can divert really, really quick. Well, I'm going to try and structure it. How it would pertain in the book is everything when you think of capital equipment, people think large infrastructure, large uh, manufactured-based products. Yeah. There's not going to be a need for that as much anymore because introduction of nanobots, wearable devices that could self-register. Uh, and again... What's really scary about that is we have this amazing built system that we're living in right now, both you and I, that can already do all these things. But again, it doesn't have a payment system aligned to it, but these other devices do. Well, not only does it not have a payment system, but there's all of these kind of external things. So we, we are living in this really weird reality where all of these technologies are coming on online quicker than we have ever seen before in a field that by the way has been moving extremely slowly suddenly the investments i was i had uh um a guest on the show just recently which is an episode coming out where we were talking about how healthcare digital healthcare tech investment has just ballooned oh, really yeah. in the last yeah. year but but what i want to talk about was population health is another area mm. right where if you could anticipate needs then your concept there about community-based health would be powerful because the only reason you have these massive hospitals and you have to kind of go in there by the dozen, and now with COVID, obviously, by the hundreds and thousands, is that we haven't been able to anticipate needs before the needs show up. Um, what are you thinking about how that could affect healthcare if we truly had 
sensors that could pick up whether there were going to be big needs and and address them mm. before they became you know needs that actually needed to be either medicated or god forbid cutting cutting off limbs and you know all of these ancient remedies which are clearly months and years late in the treatment process versus actually anticipating and saying scott your immune system you're right this is a kind of hollywood movie here you know sci-fi but you know your immune system's telling me that these three things need to be done preventatively yeah and again this is not new language talking about prevention but to what extent is that part of your scope when it when you think about digital health technologies so when you look at digital identifiers let's leave it at right. that yep right, right now there's less than 20% acceptance of artificial intelligence or data aggregation built into healthcare yeah okay and ai or just that algorithm because really ai is just an, a man-made algorithm that self-identifier with certain markers built into the code if we want to break it down so once those identifiers are built in then and only then will anticipation as far as what's your population how are they getting sick how are they not getting sick Who's moving down uh, to that area or that region of the states that you may live in or, or the region of the world that you may live in, et cetera. Once AI in the United States, now I'm talking about United States only, I want to clarify that, uh, really gets embedded into these institutions, then they'll be able to have a more reliable predictability. But until then, they don't know. They do not know. They will not know. And the reason why I know this is because the EU has had a single-payer healthcare system for a long, long time, as well as Canada. Yep. Their data that they have on individual patient or consumer need is, it looks light years in front of the United States. That's you have to have the data know. sets. You, you just have to have the data sets, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's paradoxical because the U.S. has the Framingham Heart Study, right? And this was right. the 1950s. Mm -hmm. and, and everyone in the whole world, if you're a heart expert refers back to that data because once you got that data, you can track it. And, you know, yes, it was done in the fifties and that's kind of the value of it because now you can tra tra track and trace it. You have all of these follow-on studies. There, there are similar data sets now uh, all across the EU that are tr tracing all kinds of different issues at a population-wide level. And that's valuable. There's one thing, Tron. So this is something that I even learned. Uh, so everyone, so we had... Dr. Chris Davis, uh, now this, he was a top 100 physician ranked as an interventional um, radiologist, okay, and cardi cardiac radiologist in the United States. He turned into a homeopathic naturalist physician. So he went from insurance-based pay to cash-based practice. Yeah. Okay. Now, we're going to put him off to the side real quick. Then we have Dr. Kenneth Bach, who wrote a book on the new childhood epidemic with the four A's, uh, asthma, allergy, autism, and ADHD. And right. I asked them both the same question. I said, okay, what's going on? What's happening? Why all the, Dr. Bach, why all these issues with the four A's in, in kids? And what did you see? What did the vessels look like inside these adults, Dr. Davis, when you went in? He says, oh, it's all filled with plaque. It's all with this, et cetera, just to kind of lump it up. Yep. So now 
I told, I asked both of them, what's the common denominator? They both said sugar and refined carbohydrates. Now, mm-hmm. these are physicians. You know, I, I said earlier, our medical institutions, our medical uh, school institutions, they are teaching a certain program, period. Yeah. Okay. Now, in one of my latest releases, uh, or my discussions with Ben Azadi, he's talking about a ketogenic diet and a different lifestyle. And I actually, I brought that up. I said, so we had two physicians who said X, refined carbohydrates and sugar, worst things in the world. What do you think? He goes, I actually have one that's worse and I can prove it. And here's why. I said, go. I said, I'm here to learn. Tell me all about it. (laughs) He says, vegetable oil, corn oil, sorbet, soy-based oils. He says, those, that one category with those three different products cause just an ounce of it causes 132 days of vascular inflammation. Now think about let, let, let's put all this together for everybody. This is going to floor everyone. Okay. 132 days before your system knows how to remove those toxins, toxins from the body because it's all refined. And those are the, the foods are not even really foods that are causing heart disease, for example. The number one growth area in healthcare is cardiovascular surgery and interventional surgeries. Right. Why right. do you think? I see, yeah, <laughs> I'm starting to see what you're trying to say. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. No, so I see I, that. I don't even have to say it. I just have to say the facts. And, and that's the point. Is Well, I, I'm now starting to understand why my question is naive. Why did you basically hide the last 20 years of your career? I think you want to kind of say that there's a, you need a clean slate here in order to actually even start arguing with some credibility these, these questions and not mix in, you know, things that one did as a young person to, to make money. Because basically what you're trying to say here is, you, you know, you're on the part with the revolutionaries, essentially. Mm-hmm. I want to shift a little bit here, uh, Scott, and we'll still keep talking about healthcare, but I have had a lot of questions for you because you can't really advise someone without having a clear picture of what they're trying to do. Sure. You asked me a lot of pointed questions. I want to uh, put it over to you. What questions do you have for me when it comes to how to piggyback on all the things that you have learned and your platform and what you know about healthcare? What are the missing pieces for you as you're now trying to embark on this venture, writing a book, which you haven't done before? What can I, what can I tell you? The, the biggest thing for me is I am, as I'm going through this new journey, uh, one, I'm, I'm having a ball doing it. I am having fun. Uh, my wife and I, we sit down. She's part of the Healthcare 360 team. Uh, I outsource a lot of the video editing and all the different things that are going on, stuff that we don't have time for because we need to focus on content and delivery. So when we go about that back and forth, it's about efficiency and proficiency. Just like I mentioned before, with the consult consultation uh, and how I perform there as well. Like, I don't want to be on a project for an additional month. You don't make money. It's a waste of time. It's a time vampire. Your kids miss you. All the above. You know, that ripple effect. So what I'm looking for is, if you're going to write a book, and you're going to start making the dent in the world that you're looking to make, what does yeah. it look like? Where yeah. are the gaps? My number one question I ask all of my friends is where yeah. are my gaps? What am I not seeing? 
I love yeah. feedback. I love it. I could care less if it hurts, if it's great. Uh, and we got called, uh, we were voted, we were selected and voted as one of the best medical podcasts six weeks after we first launched because of the discussions that we were having. That's incredible. What I did was I went like this. I said, great job. And I kept going. I didn't care. I, I mean, I cared. It was great, but I cared for like an hour and I moved on. Yeah. And a lot of people were like, are you crazy? Like what? I go, what do you want me to do with that information? I go, there was more to do. I'm yeah, glad we yeah. did it. I recognized that we did it. My wife and I celebrated. We went out for uh, a drink and we went out and we got some great food. But then after we moved on. But yeah. if we're going to make the impact we want to make, uh, there's not, not, not to diminish a book because it's a big, I've never done it before. It's going to be a huge accomplishment for me and my wife and our company when we do that. But we want to do it as effectively and as streamlined as possible. So, so what I don't okay. do, let me, let me tell you this, because this is going to yep. answer the question directly is what I don't do. And my wife does do, she's always willing to try to figure it out. I'd rather stop and say, Hey, excuse me. How do you know how to get here <laughs> versus trying to figure it out? Because I just look at that as a waste of time. I look at you as someone who's about to write his fourth book. You've made your mistakes. You've had your successes. Definitely. You the ins and outs. That's the golden ticket. Well, by the way, my fourth book is three weeks from having to hand in the manuscript. So I hope that I'm more than just about to write my third book. I, I basically have three weeks left to finish it. Right. Um, all right. So where do I start? First off, I have made tremendous amount of mistakes when it comes to thinking about how my craft translates into books. Um, I don't want to dwell on any of those. Uh, except for to say this, you really have a couple of choices. And then the, the, the other thing that I wanted to say is yes. you are right by trying to learn things fast because there are a lot of, what would you say? There are a lot of people out there who are trying to go after you once you say, I have the aspiration to buy a book. Sure. And I have to say, I have been subject to many of those and I have fallen for it for, for many of them. There are a lot of people who are very helpful, but there are a lot of networks and websites and things that are really just time sucks. Why are they time sucks? Because they promise you, uh, either that they know something about the craft of writing a book. And then, you know, you just sign on to this newsletter, this, that, or the other, but eventually they want your money. Yeah. And I'm not against giving people money if you get value, but the problem is, some of the people I've come across, and it's not just individuals, it's just these networks. Some of them are very aspirational, willing. Uh, they may even be successful, yeah. but what they're after is your network more than anything else. So they would say things like, oh, um, I'll help you. I know all about this marketing stuff. Just sign up and we'll run a campaign for you. And then once you've signed up, you realize then you get all these emails and they're like, send this to your network. And you realize they're just trying to piggyback on your network so that they can sell their good as right. opposed to truly being valuable. And, and there's hundreds of these. I get and the moment you express, Yeah, exactly. But there's, the point is there's some of them are good and the, the same thing is starting to happen in the podcast industry. But, but you know, some of them are good and others are, are not. The, the really fundamental question number one, which you have, some people are fortunate to have that as a choice. I didn't always have that choice, but you have to kind of decide, are you going to go with a traditional publisher? Are you going to, are you going to care about whether it's a traditional publisher or not? Mm -hmm. And if, if not, there's sort of two other 
types, right? There is the pure pay-to-play game where you're basically just issuing the book. And then there are all of these kind of options in between where you're getting some amount of editing. Um, there's some amount of contract involved, but you have a lot more control. It's all about control. And yeah. then, of course, it's about whether they have a distribution network. Right. But what it's not about is, I guess, what where I was stuck earlier was I thought that the traditional was going to be the key to visibility. That is a completely wrong way of thinking about it because traditional publishing, if you're very lucky, they have a brand. The brand helps you in some ways. If you're an academic, it helps with certain books if you have a publisher that you know the search committees have heard about. So that's why academics write books on certain uh, labels. For uh, In terms of getting your book out there, what I've understood is if you have your own platform, it's basically how much can you make out of your own platform. And in fact, whether you go traditional or you pay for the entire book being published, it's all going to come down to your platform. At the end of the day, once you have the book and you start doing the marketing planning, it is which part of your platform are you going to activate to sell this book? Because right. you can't just sell a book on a brand or even on just kind of like, uh, you know, uh, certain sort of networks that, that even traditional publishers have. Everybody depends on you to sell the book. And right. the world is such that even if you write the best book without that idea about how to sell it, whichever publishing route you go, you're going to be in trouble. What I have done is, for various reasons, several of my books were published by uh, kind of either hybrid or self-publishing solutions. The, my first book, Leadership from Below, I wasn't allowed to publish. Like I actually tried. I went to my employer and I said, I have this book manuscript and I'm planning to publish it and just letting you know. And they said, no, <laughs> you publish that and you're fired. So I said, hmm, don't want to be fired. And then I was headhunted to this next job and I realized, huh, kind of a nice job. They want me to work there. I'm not going to go to them day one and say, hi guys, I have a manuscript. I'm going to publish it. Because guess what? <laughs> they would also say, hmm, that's not done when you start a job. So I actually published that book out of other choices on the Saturday that I didn't have one job and I didn't have the next. On the 15th of, uh, you know, I believe February on some month, you know, way yeah, back. I would have walked right in, Tron. I would have been like, you know, something. Thank you very much. Have a nice day. I'm out. Because that that's right there when you get to the root cause of things, okay, is the that's not fair. That's not right. There's for what reason? Oh, it's not right on many levels, but I'm just saying, you know, it, it was trade-offs. So, yeah. so anyway, but that's how I ended up with the first book. That's Did crazy. I sell as many books as I could have? Possibly not. Was I able to go on my book tour? No. So, mm -hmm. you know, you make your choices. If I had said, I'm going to be an author and, you know, if I had gotten, um, the idea into my head and had pushed and, and maybe gotten a, a, a traditional publisher, life would have looked quite different, you know, because of those choices that I had to make. But, um, but anyway, so, so that's, uh, that was that book. Um, the other thing is speed and speed to market. You yeah, have to decide how speed to market is exactly, I mean, look, I would love to sit down and write a, a great, peaceful, in-depth dissertation, but I want speed to market. I want 
the book to look like this, where so we can get through it quick, get the information, because we're in a market today. We're in positions today where people are just going to consistently say, I don't have time. I don't have, there's a lot of noise that's out there. Let's give you, let's, let me give you two examples. Yeah. I wrote a book. I wrote, I have written three books this year. Two are out. One of them, I kind of wrote most of it last year, but I finished it in January and I published it with an excellent independent publisher called Atmosphere Press. And they are able to work really fast, but you know what? They have basically PhDs on their developmental editor team. Mm -hmm. And because they, the, the third qual, uh, notion is quality, right? So there's speed to market. There's sort of like the, the brand of the publisher, the, the speed of the publisher and the quality of the publisher. These all other questions are just not important. Speed, quality and brand. So here are these two books. Um, Book number two, Pandemic Aftermath. I decided I was going to write it the first week of February. I called up my existing Atmosphere Press publisher and I said, Nick, I had this thing in my mind. The world's going to change and I need a book out as fast as possible. I'm going to spend 17 hours a day until I finish this. Will you publish it with me? How quickly can we do it? And he said, well, I don't know. I mean, the quickest I've done is like, uh, I don't know, like uh, two, two months or something. Yeah. And I said, no, we need faster. We need faster. Yeah. That, so I mean, we I, actually, that was the question when I first saw the book, when we first met, was how timely, and this just happened. How does that happen? <laughs> In that so order. it happened because I had a pre-existing relationship with a publisher that was willing to caught me all the breaks possible. We changed everything around the process. The process of that publisher already was quick. However, they didn't compromise on quality. Day one, I was put with the, the same editor I had before, an excellent, and this is a guy who's a PhD in literature who has published anthologies of poetry and like is, is kind of one of the new heroes of, the, of contemporary American poetry, a great guy, fantastic help. So, I was able to work with a, a super high quality developmental editor, but the process is different. And, and right now with my, uh, I guess, fourth book, I'm working with a more traditional publisher, still an excellent, excellent editor, but the process is different because I have essentially signed away the rights to my work. So, mm -hmm. e uh, so one, it's slower. The publisher has a lot more cachet to it. It's a very, very uh, renowned UK, indep still independent publisher, but it's a very, very renowned publisher. But they technically kind of own the book, which makes a big difference. So when that, and by the way, I am finishing it. I would imagine they're the ones who are pushing it at the end. I am obviously gambling that the marketing is going to be very, very good. And it's going to give me something that these other books haven't given me in terms of pushing them into networks and places where that right. uh, the first uh, books didn't go. But what are you giving away? First off, you do have an editor that sort of, when the editor says, do this, I kind of have to do that because they own more of the book than me, right? My royalties are percentage wise so much less than uh than the editors the publishing house so the the stack shifts when you go for that kind of a deal plus they have this 
thing where individual chapters are perhaps uh, are at least designed to be sold separately. So it's not the creative process is not the same either. With Pandemic Aftermath, yes, I had a stellar editor who at some point said, hey, this chapter or, you know, this segment, honestly, I think we should either axe it or put it in the appendix. That same discussion happens with a traditional publisher, except if they want to put it in the appendix, it goes in the appendix. Right. And, yeah. and you, you, you're sort of, so you're forced to, into a logic that you, of course, signed up for, but it's a very, very different process. So it's actually not even the same thing. I am equally happy with those different paths, but there couldn't be more different. Hmm. Sometimes you're not given the choice. I, I mean, I will admit with uh, my uh, second book, Disruption Games, I even have put it in the acknowledgement section. I, I thank all the people who turned me down. I mean, I sent it to all of the traditional publishers. A lot of them um, actually, you know, turned me down uh, without really giving very valuable feedback. Hmm. But the feedback I did get improved my thinking. And it also, I think, positioned me much better for what I wanted to accomplish. Because I think some of the reasons why I were, was approaching them initially was for vanity and the wrong reasons. So by getting a good amount of rejection under my belt, I repositioned the reason I wrote and I had much more clarity in terms of what I wanted to say. And then, yeah. of course, if it now sells quite well and you get the message out, then you get kind of like a little bit of an I told you so. So anyway, long story short, brand quality and speed. Once you have an answer to that, I can tell you which route you should go. And I obviously have lots of recommendations for, um, by the way, I'm much better at selling other people than me. So I'm sure I could actually sell it to a bunch of traditional editors that I've now gotten to know. One of that the other take things me. I'd like to ask is, so I'll, Writing for me uh, is not difficult. I can write. Uh, I haven't practiced writing in a long time. Uh, the last paper, like long paper that I wrote, was yep. my thesis in college. And I wrote a 75-page kinesiology report on snowboarding, for example. Okay, so one of my, again, my studies uh, come out of high school was architecture and drafting. I went to school for sports medicine. Uh, I fell in love with that going into college. My senior year of high school, uh, I was transitioning out of it. So when you look at, when you go combine, we talk about everything they omitted from LinkedIn, for example. I graduated high school with an architectural degree. I then graduated college with a sports medicine uh, slash physical therapy and a business degree. And then I go in, I do consultation of how to design rooms for healthcare for clinical practice kind of all work together who knew but can i write a paper sure will it be good i don't know i haven't done it in a while so ghost writers who writes the book how do you write it is there a format there's a lot of things that i haven't touched on in a long time and as the saying goes you don't use it you lose it uh there's probably some specific skill sets and qualities that i have lost over the years since my last paper there's nothing wrong with a ghostwriter, Scott, but I think given that what you want out there is a personal message, you should be a tiny bit careful with that because I know Gary Vee talks about how to make 64 pieces of content in a day. And, you know, we are in this world where you are busy and frenetic and, and you want all that done. 
Yeah, he does stand up every, and he's on presentations every other day, and he has an entire team that does it. But that's his methodology with his team that he has. When you're talking about a small group of people on a startup that's being built up, yes, you can adopt that method. Well, what I'm trying to say is he these 64 pieces have already been preconceived. So in other words, the only reason he can outsource those 64 pieces is that the thinking has already been done. The concept is already done. So if you are looking for a ghostwriter for something that already is baked, by all means, if you're looking at a book as at one of those 64 pieces of content, and by the way, one of the things that I have really learned is that you cannot think of a book as the thing. I, I mean, it's sort of, it feels that way, right? If you look at the book, I mean, I have two of mine here, right? It's, it's, it's like mountains of, of, of work. So you're like, oh, this is really important. Most authors these days that are selling anything at all seems to me that they have made the choice that the first book, first of all, all your books, and you can't think of writing one book, you have to write a series of books because the same way that you write, a, you have a series of podcasts, no one's going to read one book. Right. I mean, unless you're Clinton or Trump or someone, they don't read a book because they think, you know, I'm, I'm going to just read this book. They want to join in a process and they want to have, if they like it, they want more of it. So the point is, most successful authors I have learned, they stick to a genre of things and then they actually write it fast enough and with enough kind of foresight that they can afford to almost, some of them literally give away the entire first book. Yeah. Now, this is crazy. But that's, I think, where the 64 pieces of content come in. As long as you have clarity of thought and the message is clear and the baseline evidence is there. Once you have that framework, it doesn't matter to me or to the reader or anybody else whether there was a ghostwriter that crafted the final form factor. But without that message, a ghostwriter, one, would take you in the wrong direction, two, probably no one would buy the book because there's no soul there. Right. As long as you have the soul, and the soul, I think, I mean, you definitely have. It's just, has it been communicated in a format that an external helper of some sort can understand it. If they can, do whatever you want. Yeah, you can do it. But <laughs> whatever you do, I would say a developmental editor, you can't you can't pass something by uh, without letting a person who truly their day-to-day -day is working and reworking content. Whether you pay for the entire book yourself or you go to a traditional publisher, you have to work with someone who basically is like unearthing these insights with you. Someone who knows the market, who knows writing, and who has written more than one book before themselves. Right. Without that person, you just, you have no idea what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I say that as someone who's written four books, right. I still have no idea what I'm doing. Tell me after I've written 10, because I've now understood that part of this is actually, you just got to write faster. You just yeah. got to think of this as a flow experience. Well, one of the I spend way too much energy refining things as opposed to just letting it go. Well, so that we, would be my advice. To you, you don't necessarily have to know the mechanism of everything. You just have to go out there and start doing it at the same time. That's one thing I've learned very, very clearly over the last uh, two years of my life is 
just start hacking. When I first started this podcast, we started the podcast because I was aligned with a gentleman where we had solved and eradicated the possibility of getting rid of surgical site infections with the originations from the OR or GI labs. Yep. Done. It was gone. How do you, how do you get that information out? Oh, let's do a podcast. Okay, great. So we can educate a lot of people. And then it just took off from there. Um, when I first look at this space around me, it was nothing like it is today. Uh, I had a computer in front of me. I had a microphone. I was using audacity. I was using all these beginner types things. And quickly I was like, you know something, we got something here. And it wasn't because we had the best tech. It was because we had the best conversation. We really had a strong conversation that was delivering to people and in really inside knowledge that people had never heard or seen before. So we said, let's amplify this. And we amplified it and how we did it. We studied better cameras, better technologies, better softwares, uh, computers. I know you said you had a computer issue earlier. Uh, yeah. I would do nothing less, for example, than I seven with 32 gigs of memory baked in with Bluetooth 5.2 you name it. So you can connect all the modalities that you need. So you can multitask. So you're processing time, for example, for like an hour. Like when I heard now, I was like, man, I, I've been where you were. Uh, now I'm doing videos in, I don't know, three or four minutes well, after the processing power and all that. So yeah, and it's all a process. But the point, is, the point is, the point is you can't get there in a second. And, and this is whether it's podcasting, which I'm new at, new, new at uh, and, or it is writing, which you or writing books, long format books, which you are new at. You have to start somewhere. And I agree with you. Just put it together. The, the, the other piece of advice, so I said three things, right? Brand quality and, uh, speed and the speed. But uh, there's also something about drafting an outline and what they call it in book language is a book proposal. So mm -hmm. I used to think a book proposal is just a sales document. Turns out if you stick to it, and by the way, I, I experienced that the hard way with my current contract. I mean, I signed the contract based on that book proposal, which I wrote. Now, now I wrote it and I'm contractually obliged to write the chapters that I had sketched out just with, you know, like, uh, uh 50 words for, for each chapter. Now they are a chapter. So whatever ideas I have, chapter nine is chapter nine. But the point is they are a structuring device also in a positive sense. Once you have nine chapters and you have laid them out, you can, you know, obviously change them around, but they really are so important in order to communicate to you, to the editor, to the publisher, and eventually to the market. If you don't have that internal structure, if you cannot actually map out at some point, your thoughts into chapters, mm -hmm. you probably don't have a book because yeah. then it's possible you have a lot of nice thoughts, but it's not a book. Right. And there are a lot of good people that shouldn't write books because all they keep writing is little chapters. Right. A chapter is not a book. Right. So, so that would be number, uh, four on my list is write a proposal, which I'd love to see, by the way. And that proposal, you need to socialize quickly. And iterate. Now, and, uh, or a guideline, you can get something online or something that you've used to help frame what that book proposal well, looks like. Sure, but I mean, I can send you my book proposals. There, are, there are many formats. There's a, a short one which is super valuable, which is just two pages, mm -hmm. and it has all those sections in and of themselves. And they're essentially just what's the concept of the book, uh, who are you that's relevant to this book. 
what's the chapter outline and then you you just chart out a little chunk uh, uh you know about what you think you want to say in each of the chapters that's the book proposal and then the tiny little section about competitive works because everybody even the way they browse for books these days through amazon right you know you always show up together with other things right. so just you know do some searches on the terms where you want to be found or where you think books are found that are relevant and uh, make sure that you at least have those in there so that in the conversation you may not think of them as very relevant but they will be brought up and even readers will want to um you know they may read one book that you disagree with but they're going to buy your book next because you're going to show up through Amazon's algorithm right. in that book. So th th those are kind of like tricks of the, of the trade. And again, millions of sites that will want to sell you templates for book proposals. I can give you my, uh, my whole book proposal for free, the, the three pagers and the, and the 10 pager, whether you like the three or the 10, I wrote both and it has helped me immensely. That's great. I would really appreciate that. Thank you for that offer. No problem. Yeah. So as we're kind of rounding up, what are the things, the next steps that you think you're going to embark on in, in sort of putting this into practice? Because <laughs> I just know that there are so many times, whether it is ideas I've had for companies or ideas I've had for books, mm. you don't understand how many books I have charted out in my diaries. And if I had just acted on any of them, I would not have been an author of four books right now. I would have been an author of 50. And I'm not just saying that. I, I literally have 50 book concepts. Some of them are way outdated and they are not going to be books. But learn quickly. Like I said, iterate, get it out there. Right. So, so what are you thinking you're going to do next? What, what have you digested from this? That's, and, and what was, in, you know, what, if anything, do you think is useful in, in this conversation? So what I took away is what I already knew, but it was just validation is speed to market. And yeah. again, I, I understand some of the concept points that you were speaking about with, if it's super niche, if it's not super niche, how is that going to be structured? Uh, so in, with those questions being posed, coming up with a book proposal to help that guideline, to make sure that you do your book, isn't a chapter idea. That I that right. that's a big takeaway right there because I do believe that it's a multiple chapter book, and I can already see a second book come out of this already. Uh, but to re-identify what the book is going to do for for me is is going to help establish what my quest really is. Is that there is another way of looking at healthcare, and by looking at uh, healthcare in the way of hey, have we exhausted all of our options versus the traditional route. Okay. On the consulting side, uh, have we made the traditional process more efficient? What have we done there? From there, we're going to go into big events. We're going to do into specialty lecturing. We're going to promote uh, big med tech startups. Uh, we're going to come out with a supplement company. There are some big things that we're coming out with because and just give you an example. There are a lot of people have food allergies. Okay. And those food allergies are uh, milk, dairy, peanuts, et cetera. Yeah. Okay? And more. Uh, not, not even include like some tomato allergies or some tree or dogs, whatever it may be. But if you're looking at food borne food allergies, most people who have a dairy allergy or a gluten allergy 
or a soy allergy usually have all three. So if you see something that's gluten-free, but yet it has milk, it's like, well, what the hell, man? Like you go to a store and you get all excited because, oh, I found something that's gluten-free, which I'm gluten-free uh, and I'm gluten intolerant. And then I'm like, oh, I can't have it because there's milk. It doesn't make sense to me. And then knowing what I know about different products. So I'm looking at this as a systemic solution of saying, okay, look, yeah, there's some options out there, but they're not good options because it doesn't cover the basis of everything. We're going to yeah. cover the basis and here's why. So I'm not, not looking at strong podcast, you know, good book or a great book and then mediocre uh, events or great. We're going to do it all. We're going to do all that kind of stuff in time. We will progress as we keep going as we're going to go, go and go. And that's it. And and that's the point, Scott, I think for me, and, and I, and I do want to give a nod, you know, my, my podcast is about the future, right? Futurized. One of the things that I think is important to keep in mind is if books are going to survive and if we're going to be part of that, the team that uh, brings book uh, books into the future, first off, they have to come out faster because one of the things that I realize is that I have almost not stopped reading books because I, I probably read a book or two a day. And well, I have since I was you remember reading the 12. book in your earliest days as a child. I have, I think since I was 13, read an average of one to two books a day. So I am a deep believer in books, but they are becoming less relevant comparatively in, in terms of what I consume. Well, Just because they're so much easier to do. You have a supercomputer in your pocket and video, you can get the information out. Yes. Uh, the difference is raw video versus an edited structured video. Uh, this is the point where the marketing levels come in. Yes, but yes, yes. The availability of video is as fast as hit and record upload done. Yeah. And, and that's the problem. So w what I think you and I need to work with is that each media has its own laws or rules, and then you can break some of them. Um, the truth of the matter is, which is why I started with thought leadership, is that if you think you're a thought leader, and I, and I know you are, then you have a message. So the next is, of course, you want that message out in every media. Now, what are the media that matter? Books still matter. They are actually, if you look at COVID or anything, mm. they are a slower medium. It takes a while to get these books out, even if you write them in, in a month or two. But once they are out, books have a different function in kind of the reflection level of a population than a video has. And there still is value, I think, in the format of a book. And, and, you know, there is something to be said for books, whether they are physical books or ebooks. But the point is this, if you are a thought leader, you actually need to be in every medium. You need to have videos, you need to have a podcast, you yeah. need to have books coming out. It's just that you can't sit there and overvalue books to the point where you're like, oh, I'm scratching my head on this book. I'm going to get it written. I'm going to get it written. Once you start writing, it takes you a year or two to write it. it, takes you a year or two to publish it. And then no one reads it because you don't have time to market it. The thing is, Right. That is an old school way of thinking. If yeah. you are going to think of it as part of your portfolio, 
it is never going to be the only thing in your portfolio. I'm and, already designing you know, and dressing a solution to what you're proposing already. And, and that, that's how my brain is wired. Cause I sit there and I train myself to listen to people where if I'm in a, a room of 12 to 15 people, all different disciplines, all different levels of healthcare yep. is what's in it for me. Like WIFM. Okay. What are they looking for? Why? And I remember when I was young into the business, I would sit down with a tape recorder or the little Sony recorders and I'd put it on the table and I would sit there and take notes based on the physical expressions of the bodies as something was being told or presented to them and what their response was and why. And that was the best learning. But then I go back, I take my notes, I match them up with the audio and I'd sit there and I, okay, what's important to them and why, what's important to them and why WIFM gap analysis, gap analysis, gap analysis. And that's how we got really, really good. So I got what I was taught in school. And then from there, I combine that with the language, both verbally and physically. And that's what shaped my success. Uh, and right now, listening to you and watching you, I'm doing the same thing. So as you're telling me speed to market on the books, well, what if as you were reading the book, you just, you created a podcast on it or for that <laughs> yeah. matter, you just spoke into a microphone and you read it back. So because I'm, I would think at least that someone's going to look at the punctuation and the dialogue and the stops or the pauses in the book that they're trying to be expressed that you can get through it a lot faster audibly versus reading it. Yeah. And you know, it, it might be that that's your way of writing books. My, my, my point in all of this, I think, you know, is that it's all about the flow of thought. And this is a whole other podcast, but I am truly now deeply embedded and my next book will be about this, you know, future tech is the name of the book, but really it's about what, how do we build the poly, polymaths of the future? How do we create and foster this ability to take in all of the insight around us and do something useful with it? And, and what kind of education do we need? What kind of principles, what kind of practices do we need as individuals and organizations in order to capture and do all that? And I'm fascinated by note-taking techniques because some of them, like the one you described, are very active. And you're actually an active participant. You're thinking, you're doing something. I just came across two different types of these techniques. One is called the Cornell method, and it consists of basically writing, you know, on one side of the paper, you write kind of facts about what you're listening to. Mm. And on the other side, you write your questions to what you're listening to. And then there's a whole process. And they, this was developed by a professor at Cornell. And there's a whole process whereby you should basically the day after you should go into this thing and check if you have understood it and what your new questions are, and then keep kind of iterating on that. And then that becomes a document, whether it was a speech you listened to or a book you read or some thoughts you have. You should always fit it on one piece of paper, facts on one side, questions on the other side, and then commentary and takeaways on the bottom. Mm. Extremely powerful stuff. Then completely different tradition. There's something in German called Zettelkasten. And that's also in, in one of my, uh, podcasts, but, uh, you know, a, um, interviewee I had there had just discovered this technique. Turns out I have been using this technique, but it's a German method of, again, uh, it's a specific type of note taking where you relate everything conceptually. So it's like an early form of manual AI, but you relate 
everything to one another. And again, it's all based on kind of like one sheet per thought, uh, but very, very structured. So it becomes an archive where everything you ever do in your entire life, if you have a thought, put it down on a note card. Yeah. Only one thought per note card. Whenever you have another thought that you think is marginally useful, write it down on a second note card. Once you have 10 note cards, now you need to relate thought number one to something else, if there is a sense in it. And then you just write a number. That's what I'm Extremely simple. Yeah. But if you started doing that, and if someone smart was able to truly digitize that process, immensely powerful. I mean, these are the things that people are craving these days. We all want to learn. That's how I use Siri. I use uh, Siri on my watch on every thought because it's a reminder for every thought, individual card that gets banked and filed away, uh, even at night, because uh, I wear my watch at night for um, just because I like wearing it. I just, I'm just used to doing it. Uh, it does sleep patterns and all that kind of stuff. So I was testing it out to see what the tech is going to do. I'm using myself yeah. as a little bit of a guinea pig, but using Siri, saying, hey, remember this, or remind me to whatever the, the words will be to follow. That's how I'm getting all those ideas down. Uh, and I have, you know, top 10 ideas for video, copy, image every day of what we're going to put out for content and how we're going to deliver the message, et cetera, et cetera. Look, Scott, you're doing all the right things. I'm so enthusiastic and excited that you're writing it down in book form. And I think if there's one thing I just want to leave with you, it's don't think of it as I'm going to write a book. Think of it as I'm opening a new media channel. And the media channel is books. That's a great perspective. Yeah. It's been a pleasure to listen to you and to try to impart a little bit of what I know about writing books. And by the way, I'm learning so much from listening to your podcast, from being on your show, and from just trying to embody some of this immense, and it's not an interview technique that you have. You are a practitioner of deep interviews. You just are immensely curious and you're really good at it. And you can hear it on every podcast. So I wanted to just compliment you on this immense empathy that you have with people that you listen to on your show. And I, I, I try to do something similar, but you know, I, I usually fail at, at being such a <laughs> deep listener as you are. It's, so, uh, thanks for coming on my show, Scott, and uh, let's stay in welcome. touch. My, it's been my pleasure, and I can't thank you enough, and I hope your audience gets something from our conversation and dialogue. Uh, I know, uh, well, then, let me give you some feedback real quick. Uh, we went to our softball practice with my daughters. And yep. Now, this was right when you and I were recording. You, you want me to turn this thing off? Um, no, everything's good. Yeah. Yep. Um, so... When we were, am I, uh, yeah, I'm recorded. Okay. So when you and I were recording originally and they would say, Hey, what was the conversation on? And I told them, I said, Oh, I I met a gentleman and he wrote a book called pandemic aftermath. I go, it's very timely. It's, it's really just a different perspective. It's really interesting. So I went into the dialogue, we went through, uh, and I kind of stuck to the top five because it was, I found that your intellect was really easy to deep dive with where some people can get lost real quick if they weren't there mentally. Right. So like, okay. So how do we bring that concept to people where they could digest it in, in its usable format and conversation afterwards? 
So we started off there. So the feedback that we got back uh, after a lot of the, a lot of the parents there, that means is, I mean, 20 parents, um, yeah. more than half of them listened to it and they're like, Oh my gosh, like that, that conversation was unbelievable. Like it, it can so oh, wow. really happen. And I go, it absolutely can happen. Not only can it happen, a high majority of probably will happen because history repeats itself. I mean, these things are, are known throughout our history as beings. And they came back to like, like, where do you think of these things, Burgess? And I said, look, <laughs> you shouldn't ask those questions, but <laughs> here's, here's where I go. And that's it. I just, I just love being curious and being yeah. curious is really just, and what, what, what's being called to me is saying, okay, what's, what's happening here? And you just evaluate things and just go about it without any recourse or worrying about it. You know, you just gave me a cue uh, and, and we, we probably can't go all the way there, but you know, in one of the, one of the problems current AI has is, you know, when you're thinking about what it means to be a human being and how you're going to reproduce that in an AI, mm. being curious is actually really hard to reproduce. Oh, it's there's two things, there's two things apart from consciousness, which is a, an abstract term anyway, but memory, forgetting, and you know, and what we're just t talking about, those are those are the issues that are going to just get us into trouble when we're trying to turn those into an AI that's even going to be remotely helpful. Because how does a computer forget? Right. Well, the you, thing is this: like it, it's not possible or even plausible because of emotion. There is no way that you can teach a computer emotion emotion that gets semantically embedded in your body from all the time of our life from the moment we're born to adulthood and so on there's just no way of programming a memory and an emotion combined through intellect into a computer chip well it would have to be a lived experience of that sentient right. intelligence you know which is why i think by by the way elon musk says uh you know whatever might happen uh, it, as an insurance policy, I'm building Neuralink because let's at least merge human humans with technology before too long right now, because, you know, if some, some other runaway AI, mm -hmm. uh, and you know, I don't share his, his worries, but I see his point is like, in terms of like theory B, if, if, if really, uh, there is a po potential of a runaway AI, as an insurance policy, what he's, he's, he's doing two things. One, he's, uh, he's sending us to Mars. We have to become an intergalactic species and an interplanetary species first, right? And so that's like if we screw up the Earth with climate change, at least there's another planet to go to. Number two, if we screw up the Earth with AI, at least let's merge ourselves with this AI so that it, it, if it is a runaway, it is at least some hybrid human AI runaway that has some conception of what it means to be human. So anyway, I mean, I don't know exactly how we got on this, but, uh, but it's related to like... I'm going to on that one, okay? If, and, and I really do not believe it's too far off, okay? So now there's going to be three things I'm going to say here. So V for Vendetta, one of my favorite, actually my favorite movie of all time. It is number one out of all my genres. It was cast in 2005, and it was portrayed to be 2020, okay? Now, that movie and all of its conception and everything else is... Hold on one second. Let me... Uh,
this is what happens when you schedule something for 45 minutes and have so much fun thinking about it that it turns into an hour and a half. Scott, I don't know if you missed that, but basically we're supposed to talk for 45 minutes. Here we are at oh, an no, hour and a half. <laughs> so here we are with um, going and we're looking at AI. So if you look at just is the show called V for Vendetta. It's two, it was uh, put out in 2005. It's cast with 2020. There are unbelievable similarities in that movie projected into what's actually happening today. That's one. Two, if you were to look at a documentary, and this is this is inside my brain now, it's just possibility, just curiosity. Could something be real? And the only way to find truth is if you truly evaluate both sides and you weigh them out. But there's a documentary on YouTube called Out of Shadows, and it talks about how Hollywood is in with these big companies and how they're pushing narratives throughout our our time on this earth as young as a kid all the way to adults and, and through movies and entertainment and then when you look at another show called three percent you know i'll get to the point right after this and three percent is about the elite they move to a different part of the world and the rest of the population very close to what your book was like right with the chaos and there's three percent of the general pop that are able and capable to go to the elite class so let's bring elon musk again in mars and earth what if that scenario looking at everything i just mentioned thinking that everyone had watched it and and seen everything i just i talked about what if the real goal there was for the elite to leave the planet because they see the, what's really going to happen long-term and leave the general pop here and only 3% can move forward. Because according to, you know, speculatively, is looking at out of shadows and what it did on YouTube is usually what happens in Hollywood usually gets portrayed in some fashion as time moves forward. It's interesting you say that one of the guests I am negotiating with, hopefully he can come on the show soon, is uh, Adam uh, Draper of Boost VC. He He's running a VC shop with the premise of sci-fi tech. Mm. So he's, all he's investing is is technology that essentially feels or has appeared in sci-fi in some form. I mean, I'm paraphrasing. I don't know. I haven't really explored with him yet the depth of his definition of this. But the point is, we know this, that sci-fi has been extraordinarily influential on engineers uh, because they are drawn to those kinds of shows. So there's no wonder that technologies that were in Star Trek and Star Wars and, and, you know, and by the way, a plethora of the entire tradition of sci-fi books and movies eventually make themselves into tech products because the people who are the target audience of those movies, they get inspired and it's inspiring when you're watching it in a movie format. So of course, in the back of your head, whatever you're developing, you're always thinking, wow, I wish I could have some role in that really cool thing, which you've probably dreamt about when you were little. So that's not to say that the only thing we develop comes from sci-fi, but there is a fundamental truth there, which is human beings tend to get very inspired by things that get to them in visual and story telling form and that tends to drive a lot of progress and development 
You have just listened to episode 26 of the Futurized podcast with host Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was how to write a book on the future of healthcare. Our guest was Scott E. Burgess, founder of Healthcare 360 Media Group and host of the Healthcare 360 podcast. We talked about the importance of having a deep conviction before you write a book, how you go about creating a piece of true thought leadership, and more specifically, what's wrong with healthcare today. In the process, Scott starts sketching the solution he envisions, rebuilding healthcare from scratch, and where you need to become your own best healthcare advisor. My takeaway is that there is no substitute for integrity. I now more deeply understand the rogue thinking required to turn healthcare around, and I would look to Scott to provide a key perspective in the coming year. The system of the future will be, or rather needs to be, built around the individual, not the insurance or even the medical providers. What that means goes far beyond the current industry buzzword of value-based care. As for how to write books, I summarized it into four key decisions surrounding flow, brand, quality, and speed. I believe if you know your approach to these four issues, everything else follows. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurized.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.